Hiring across the country revved up last month. The U.S. employers added 353,000 jobs, well over what was expected. That's great news for workers, but it could mean a longer wait for the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates. Our story is coming up on this Friday, February 2nd. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More on the strong economic news coming up. Also, a judge has blocked the merger of JetBlue and Spirit Airlines, so there's concern that Spirit may not be able to stay an independent carrier for long. Actor Donald Glover's new series is a reinvention of the spy film Mr. and Mrs. Smith. In the new version, marriage is just a cover for two spies to collaborate. So you two work together? Yes. And what is it that you two do? We're computer uh, software engineers. Eric Deggan's review is coming up. It's 4.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A year after the Democratic National Committee shook up the presidential nominating calendar, South Carolina will officially go first tomorrow. It'll be President Biden's first time on the ballot this election season. Here's South Carolina Public Radio's Mayan Schechter. More than 40,000 South Carolinians are expected to vote early in the Democratic primary. With Biden poised to win the state, Democrats say they'll be watching a key factor they hope will dispel the narrative that voters aren't enthusiastic about the president, turnout. Here's South Carolina-based Democratic strategist Antoine Seawright. When Biden does well here in South Carolina, I think that will send a surging message to states that will follow South Carolina In the primary, I don't think the president or the Democratic Party can take any constituency for granted. High turnout could also boost the case for South Carolina to continue going first on the Democratic primary calendar. For NPR News, I'm Mayan Schechter in Columbia, South Carolina. Israel says it has defeated Hamas in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunis. It's been the main battleground between them in recent days. NPR's Greg Myrie reports the Israeli military now plans to push toward Gaza's southern border. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, made a surprise visit to Han Yunus, accompanied by several generals. His appearance lent credence to his claim that Israel had dismantled the Hamas forces defending the city, though there are still reports of limited skirmishes. Gallant said Israeli troops intend to push all the way to Rafah, a town several miles further south on Gaza's border with Egypt. Most of Gaza's civilians are now crammed into the southern part of the territory, with many camped out in tents in the Rafah area. While Hamas is still battling back, Israel says the group is no longer fighting as cohesive units. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Emmy-nominated actor Carl Weathers has died. He passed away at his home yesterday. Carl Weathers was known most recently for his role in the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian, as well as other memorable roles in Predator, Arrested Development, Toy Story, and Adam Sandler's Happy Gilmore, but he was likely best known as Apollo Creed. Starring across Sylvester Stallone as rival-turned-ally boxer in the Rocky franchise. Damn, Ron, come on! What's the matter with you? Tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. Long before acting, Weathers was in the NFL. He played two seasons with the Oakland Raiders. Carl Weathers was 76 years old. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 134 points. You're listening to 
NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Newton School Committee and the Teachers Union say they are extremely close to a deal to end the strike that's gone on for two weeks. WBUR's Kara Young says all indications point to the strike coming to an end soon. The Teachers Union, the mayor's office, and the school committee have all sent out messages to families and press releases saying that they are in agreement on financial issues. There are a few smaller things that they have to work out after working through the night last night that have to do with management types of issues, questions about planning time and that kind of thing. A judge is considering whether to raise fines on the teachers' fines on the teachers' union. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. So far, the union has been hit with more than $600,000 in fines. Stewart Healthcare says it has no plans to close any of its nine hospitals in the state. The financially troubled company says it's secured financing to operate the facilities normally. At the same time, it's working on merger and acquisition agreements that could see some of its hospitals transferred to new operators. Stewart employs 16,000 workers in Massachusetts. A judge on the state Supreme Judicial Court ruled today that hearings for 28 people accused of being customers of a high-end brothel will be held in public. Associate Justice Frank Gaziano ruled that having public hearings will promote transparency and accountability. Typically, the hearings are held behind closed doors. Today, the judge also ruled that supporting court documents that detail the charges will not be released, despite a request from WBUR, the Boston Globe, and NBC10 Boston. None of those accused of being customers of the sex ring has been criminally charged yet. Federal prosecutors say the brothel was run out of Cambridge, Watertown, and the Washington, D.C. area. And more than two billion gallons of runoff mixed with raw sewage was discharged into Merrimack River last year. That's a new record, more than doubling the previous record. Kurt Rogers is executive director of the Merrimack River Watershed Council. We can't say that we didn't expect it, but we were pretty shocked. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a staggering amount of sewage that was put in the river. He adds the problem gets worse when rain or flooding overwhelm sewer systems. That's happening more often, he says, as climate change drives more extreme rainfall. Cities in the rivershed that are responsible for the discharges are working to repair their sewer systems. In the forecast, no rain, looks like. Clouds have broken up a bit today. They should remain intact tonight, though, turning windy overnight. Chance of maybe for a shower or two, but not too much. About 30 degrees for a low. Weekend should be in the mid-30s tomorrow. Starting off with clouds and sunshine moves in, kind of windy. Sunday should be a sunny day, a little bit chilly once again. 41 degrees now at 407. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Atlanta attorney prosecuting Donald Trump and his allies is pushing back against claims of misconduct. Today, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis admitted to a relationship with a prosecutor on the case. She denies, though, violating any ethical standards or any laws. Well, helping us understand the latest is NPR Stephen Fowler, who's in Atlanta. Hey, Stephen. Hey there. Okay, so I want to make sure that we just understand what these misconduct allegations against Fonnie Willis are. Lay them out. 
So one of the co-defendants in this 2020 election interference case is Mike Roman. He's a former Trump campaign official. He filed a motion last month seeking to dismiss the charges against him and disqualify Willis from the case. This filing claimed that Willis hired Nathan Wade as an outside prosecutor on the case in 2021 and hired him as they were in a relationship. Wade's been paid hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars for his work since then, so Roman's lawyers argue Willis and Wade are financially benefiting from this prosecution, violating ethics rules and even violating federal racketeering laws, which is a bit ironic considering that the RICO racketeering law is what Roman, Trump, and others have been charged with at the state level. Indeed. Separately but relatedly, Nathan Wade's been in these lengthy divorce proceedings where fights over money and similar allegations of infidelity led to documents filed that showed Wade paid for two plane tickets in Fonnie Willis's name. Fast forward to what happened then in court this afternoon. Willis, as we said, admitted to having a relationship with Wade, but she's insisting there's no wrongdoing and that none of this has any bearing on the Trump case. Tell us more. Well, Mary Louise, first off, it's important to note this isn't challenging any of the charges against Trump or others or dealing with any of the facts about what happened once he lost Georgia's electoral votes, this is a separate issue. Yes, the filing says there's a personal relationship between the two, but not until 2022 after Wade was hired to work on the case. Willis says there's no conflict of interest in the relationship. There's no financial benefit from prosecuting Trump or any other defendant, no violation of racketeering laws, and she pushes back on the legal arguments made to try and dismiss these charges. It's a pretty strongly worded response, accusing the defendants basically of stirring up the pot and trying to attack them in the court of public opinion. Yeah, that's what I want to hear about, the court of public opinion. Setting aside the legal issues, how is all this affecting perception of the case? Well, it's certainly been further fanning the flames surrounding an already red-hot case. The original allegations were made January 8th, several weeks ago, and the time since then has led to a lot of headlines and speculation filling the gap. I mean, even some of Fonnie Willis's allies have suggested she stepped down from the prosecution. It's also led to even more attacks against Willis and the charges by Trump and his allies, which has been part of his playbook in all the other criminal cases he's facing. Trump's lawyers here have joined onto the motion to toss out the charges, and no matter what a judge decides, the admission of a relationship could taint perception of the DA leading this case. Dates to watch. What comes next? Well, we have this response from Willis. The next thing scheduled is a hearing on the matter, February 15th. Willis says there's no need for a hearing now that she has this response, and the judge should just deny the requests outright. But if this hearing still happens, we should expect arguments about the relationship's impact and details on the case to be front and center and televised live. The judge could ultimately agree with Willis and we move closer to getting an initial trial date set, or the judge could remove the case to a different district attorney. But one thing is for certain, there will be continued attacks on both the prosecutor and the charges from Trump and other Republican allies until the case is resolved. And case in point, Trump has already posted about it on his Truth social media platform. NPR's Stephen Fowler reporting from Atlanta. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. So you may have heard of the high-fat, low-carb keto diet. It's become popular for weight loss. But the ketogenic diet was first developed for people with epilepsy. And now some doctors say it shows promise for mental health. NPR's Will Stone has that story. 
Ian Campbell was gazing out the window as he took the bus to work when he first sensed a radical shift. He saw the trees and the natural world passing him by. And I was like, oh, people feel good when they look at nature, kind of happy and peaceful. And I hadn't experienced that in a really long time, probably since I was a kid. For many years, Campbell had lived with bipolar disorder. Oh my gosh, this might be what it feels like to be normal. A few weeks earlier, he'd started a new diet, hoping to lose some weight. He cut out carbs and focused on eating fat and protein. Turns out, without realizing it, Campbell had entered ketosis. It's a metabolic state when the body switches gears. Instead of relying on glucose, blood sugar, as its primary energy source, it draws on ketones, which come from the breakdown of fat. And then I did a graph, and I saw that my ketone level was correlated to my symptoms. The higher ketone level, the lower my symptoms. Campbell went on to get a PhD at the University of Edinburgh so he could study why this diet might work for mental illness. And he wasn't the only one interested. A few years earlier, Dr. Chris Palmer, a psychiatrist at Harvard and McLean Hospital, had his own revelation after two of his patients with schizoaffective disorder tried keto. Both of them had really, truly dramatic, life-changing improvement in their psychotic symptoms. The ketogenic diet was developed over 100 years ago. It's considered a mainstream, evidence-based treatment for pediatric epilepsy, which is why Palmer says it's not out of place in his field. Treatments from epilepsy are routinely prescribed for psychiatric conditions. We use them off-label, even when we don't have studies to suggest or to prove that they are helpful for people with mental illness. So in many ways, this is nothing new. But there wasn't much momentum around this research until a few years ago. That's when Palmer started working with Matt Bazuki. His parents were Jan and David Bazuki, a wealthy tech entrepreneur. Jan thought the diet might help her son, who tried many treatments for bipolar disorder. Within a couple of months, we saw a dramatic change. Soon, the family was eager to fund serious research. Now there are about a dozen clinical trials in the works to test the ketogenic diet's potential for mental illness, in particular for bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and major depression. The research and the clinical interest is suddenly exploding. Dr. Georgia Ede is a psychiatrist in Massachusetts who trains other clinicians on how to use the diet. From working with hundreds of people over more than 10 years, Almost everybody, and this is really not an exaggeration, who tries a ketogenic diet in the right way for long enough experiences some degree of noticeable benefit. At the moment, there is no high-quality evidence, no randomized controlled trials to back this up. What's out there is encouraging, though. For example, several small open trials have shown promise for bipolar disorder. And an observational study of patients hospitalized with serious mental illness in France found more than 40% achieved clinical remission. Here's how Dr. Shabani Sethi sums up the evidence. I would say it's in a very early stage. Sethi is leading this research at Stanford University. The classic ketogenic diet contains an eye-popping amount of fat, about 90% of calories coming from that alone. But there are now other versions that dial down the fat and make more room for protein and slightly more carbs. It's not a fad diet. It's a medical intervention. The interest in keto reflects a broader movement around what's known as metabolic psychiatry. It's a term Sethi coined when she launched Stanford's program in 2015. To communicate how metabolic dysfunction, whether it's in the body or in the brain, play a significant role in psychiatric disease. 
The research here goes back decades. While a causal link isn't proven, there are strong, well-documented associations between certain psychiatric conditions and metabolic problems like high blood sugar, insulin resistance, and obesity. Sethi's research on bipolar disorder finds the diet can reduce patient symptoms and improve their metabolic health. She says the diet isn't a substitute for medications. It's not going to necessarily be helpful for everybody, but it's a tool that will help some individuals. Scientists still aren't entirely sure why keto works for seizures. Much of the evidence on the diet comes from epilepsy and other neurological conditions that share similarities with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and depression. This includes increased inflammation in the brain, harmful oxidative stress, and problems metabolizing glucose. Research suggests keto can be beneficial on all these fronts, though human studies are limited. Some believe the mitochondria, the power plants of the cell, are crucial. This is what Ana Andreaza studies at the University of Toronto. The mitochondria in our bodies, it's mostly very functional and very adaptable to different sources of energy. But she says research shows in psychiatric illness, the mitochondria can run into trouble. It's actually dysfunctional and is not being responsive. Imagine the mitochondria as a car with a hybrid engine. These ketones, which come from fat, provide an alternative fuel. So when we bring this alternative source of effective energy, now you're bypassing that unaffected fuel that was coming to the car. The thinking goes that fixing that metabolic engine can also help psychiatric symptoms. Dr. Dost Unger at McLean Hospital believes keto research will propel other treatments targeting metabolic health in psychiatry. The ketogenic diet is really a test case, but it's not the silver bullet. We have to be modest about this. But some doctors, like Drew Ramsey, worry there's already too much hype ahead of solid evidence. Everyone should be skeptical. Ramsey is a psychiatrist who focuses on nutrition. He has many questions. When does it work? It works for some people, which is awesome, but most things work for some people in mental health. Another question is, can patients stick to the diet? Dr. Rif L. Malik is a psychiatrist at the University of Louisville. He believes keto can be effective for bipolar disorder and had luck with a few patients over the years, but... I haven't been able to get people to stay on it. So I'm not at all as excited as maybe other people. Other doctors say with enough support and education, patients can do it. In his pilot trial, Ian Campbell found about a quarter of people dropped out. But of the patients who completed the study, about a third responded powerfully. They would describe it to me like, this changed my life completely. I'm reconnecting with my family. I can work again for the first time. It's a sentiment that Campbell knows well, and it's why he's pushing forward with this work. Will Stone, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The urgency to find shelter space for migrant families in Massachusetts has led the governor to convert a popular Roxbury Recreation Center into a shelter. But Boston's mayor doesn't like the idea. Even so, the plan has gone ahead. That story is coming up in about five minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. Winston Flowers and support for WBUR, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day. 
Order now to save 10% at WBUR.org. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent today. The S&P rose for a fourth straight week. It picked up more than one percent to finish at a record high. And the Nasdaq grew by one and three-quarters percent. The Harvard bookstore in Cambridge is shelving plans to open a branch in the Prudential Center, Boston. Store owners said today in an email that because of escalating costs and supply chain issues, a store at the Pru would be unstable. They say instead they'll focus on expanding their 92-year-old flagship location in Harvard Square. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Lots of clouds overnight tonight. Tomorrow morning, clouds, then eventually sunshine. Sunshine's back for Sunday. Should have weekend temperatures in the mid to upper 30s. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sarah McCammon. In El Salvador, President Nayib Bukele is expected to win re-election by a landslide on Sunday. The popular leader, who calls himself the world's coolest dictator, declared a state of emergency nearly two years ago. During this period, the murder rate has dropped and tens of thousands of gang members have been imprisoned. That brought a new sense of security to the country. But as Emily Green reports, it came at a major cost. Nayib Bukele catapulted to the presidency in 2019. He was 37 years old, favored leather jackets and jeans, and was a social media maverick. Since then, Bukele has become one of the most popular and polemical leaders in all of Latin America. Here he is in a recent video. We were sold a fake peace, he says, and 30 years passed and they sold us a fake security. It's typical Bukele, antagonizing, brash, and politically astute. Because Bukele, against all odds, has succeeded in decimating the country's violent street gangs and bringing homicide rates to all-time lows, which he advertises on social media and captures in videos like these. Gang members with shaved heads, stripped down to white shorts, being rounded up in newly built mega prisons. Bukele has achieved all this by essentially disregarding the Constitution. He's imposed an indefinite state of emergency that has suspended constitutional rights and given authorities sweeping powers to arrest anyone, regardless of whether there's evidence. More than 76,000 people have been detained. And most Salvadorans, they're thrilled. God listened to our prayers, says Arnulfo Mazarego. He sells papusas and sodas at a street stand in Las Margaritas. For decades, it was one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the capital. Where were human rights when children were killed right before my eyes just because they didn't want to do a favor for the gangs, he says. Masarego says for years he had to pay a monthly extortion fee of around $250 to the MS-13 street gang just to run his business in peace. But after Bukele's crackdown, the gang members were arrested. 
Mazariego used extortion money to pay for an operation on his eyes. He was going blind. I don't care if Bukele is violating the Constitution, he says, a Constitution that clearly prohibits presidents from serving consecutive terms. But Mazariego says it's the people that will decide. From Chile to Ecuador, many leaders are scrambling to emulate Bukele's security policies. He was even voted Costa Rica's favorite political leader in an October poll there. The Biden administration, which was critical of Bukele, has softened its tone. But rights groups say thousands of innocent people have been caught up in Bukele's gang crackdown. Around 100 people marched in the capital calling for the release of their loved ones. Jose Antonio Beltran carries a photo of his daughter to his chest. He says police showed up at his home in December 2022 and demanded his daughter go with them. He says the police didn't give a reason, just that they were under orders to make their quota. I'm worried because my daughter isn't a criminal, he tells us. She doesn't have a criminal record. It's been almost 14 months and I still don't have information and she hasn't even been tried, he says. While Bukele has acknowledged that some innocent people have been unjustly arrested, he has lambasted human rights groups who criticize his policies, saying they are siding with terrorists. And that message is winning in El Salvador. Some analysts project that Bukele's political party will win 58 of 60 congressional seats, giving Bukele unchecked authority. Malcolm Cartagena is a political analyst in El Salvador. La gente va directo al matadero. People are consciously headed straight to the slaughterhouse, he says. There will be more imprisonments, more persecution, he says. But democracy is a hard sell in a country where violence and jobs are top of mind. Around 70 people gather at a small political rally in San Salvador's historic downtown. A man on a loudspeaker praises Bukele, reminding people to vote. This area was once filled with gangs, but now brims with street life. Carlos Flores is here with his four children. They're all wearing t-shirts adorned with Bukele's picture. Flores fled to Virginia as a young man. It's his first time home in 25 years. He says he couldn't travel here before because of the violence. It was too dangerous. But everything is different now, he says. When he left for El Salvador, he couldn't walk around like he is now, he says, with a watch on and everything. Now I can breathe fresh air. In El Salvador, President Bukele has made people choose. Do they want freedom from gang violence? Or do they want civil liberties and human rights? Most people are choosing the former. For NPR News, I'm Emily Green in Mexico City. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Tonight, dozens of migrant families will spend yet another night on the floor at Logan Airport. They need temporary housing, but the state shelters are full. So this week, the governor's office opened a new shelter at a busy recreation center in Roxbury. The decision to move the migrants there has gotten pushback from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and from Roxbury residents who are already facing economic and housing burdens. But as WBR's Paula Mora reports, their objections have not stopped the plan. Around mid-January, Governor Mora Healy faced an emergency. A couple hundred migrants were spending nights at the airport, and the state's shelters were full. 
After looking at many potential shelter sites, the state was focused on one, the Melnia Cass Recreational Complex, a place where youth groups play sports and older residents walk on the track. The Healy administration reached out to political leaders in Roxbury for a community meeting. About 250 people attended on Zoom. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was clearly unhappy. Taking offline a community asset that was specifically designed for community programming to be used in this way. And that I, I take very seriously. For me, that has been um, a big sticking point. The meeting lasted more than three hours. The governor stayed the whole time. In an email, her spokesperson said the state incorporated the community's feedback into their plans. City Councilor Tanya Fernandez Anderson is one of the local representatives who helped organize the session with residents. She spoke with WBUR in an interview. The governor is not oblivious that she's coming to a neighborhood that's historically disenfranchised in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Boston. People are going to push back. The mayor seemed to hold out hope that night that another option could be found. But by Monday, the deal was done. The governor told the Roxbury representatives in a letter that plans were underway to shelter up to 400 people at the center. Residents would not be able to use the site until June. Fernandez said the governor was emotional at the meeting. Obviously, her hands were tied. Officials said other locations like Suffolk Downs and a West Roxbury campus wouldn't work as well. The Roxbury Center was more accessible, had more bathrooms and other benefits. To some, the decision was unfair. Sadiki Kambon is the director of the Black Community Information Center. He says he's sympathetic to the migrants, but says that officials didn't consult the community enough. It's just a broad level of disrespect for our community that we encounter on a regular basis. He wants to meet with the governor about this and to advocate for walk-in health clinics in Nubian Square. On Wednesday, Healy and Wu put on a united front at a press conference, and long rows of cots were set up to receive the newcomers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Growing up, I remember working through these learn-to-read books while a lot of my classmates were just whizzing through chapter books. I had bad dyslexia. My parents would come home from these long days at work, 10, 12-hour shifts, and they'd sit down with me, and we'd sound out syllables and then string it into words. Now that I have my own kids, I think about their commitment differently. I see the support, the love that it takes to help someone else do something that's hard for them. This year, I will be sending each of them a bouquet of Winston flowers through WBUR. We used to listen to the station together. I found it easier than reading the newspaper, which was hard for me. If you want to thank someone, consider sending Winston flowers. It's a way to say thank you and also support the news at the same time. Visit WBUR.org to get started. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. U.S. officials have uh, launched an air assault on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria. This comes in retaliation for the drone strike that killed three, uh, three U.S. troops in Jordan last weekend. The initial strikes 
by manned and unmanned aircraft were hitting command and control headquarters. We'll have more on this as it develops. Meanwhile, in Michigan, prosecutors are wrapping up their questioning of the mother of a mass shooter who killed four high school students, wounding several others in 2021. Jennifer Crumbly and her husband are both charged with involuntary manslaughter in connection with the shooting at Oxford High School. On the stand, she discussed the drawing shown to her on the day of the shooting made by her 15-year-old son, Ethan. School counselors had told her he was caught drawing a graphic picture of a school shooting during a class. Crumbly says she didn't recognize it was a picture of the gun that would be used to kill four of his classmates. The Biden administration says this is not the time for a new Security Council resolution on Gaza after Algeria drafted one calling for an urgent humanitarian ceasefire. But as NPR's Michelle Kellerman tells us, the U.S. says it could upend talks on a new hostage deal. The U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, says the U.S. is working with Egypt, Qatar, and others on what she calls a compelling proposal. It would lead to a longer pause in fighting in exchange for the release of hostages held by Hamas. She says the Security Council should press Hamas to accept the deal. We believe that the draft resolution put forward by Algeria does not achieve this end. On the contrary, this draft resolution could put sensitive negotiations in jeopardy. Thomas Greenfield says the council should focus instead on the two resolutions it already passed. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Steward Healthcare says it has a deal in place to stabilize its finances and keep its nine Massachusetts hospitals open for now. The Texas-based for-profit company has warned that financial problems jeopardized its operations. Stewart says it has an agreement on a bridge funding transaction but did not give specifics. Tim Foley is the executive vice president of 1199 SEIU. The union represents about 5,000 steward workers. I think it's a good sign that there's stability for some duration as uh, a longer-term plan is put in place to ensure these hospitals remain open. Stewart has 16,000 workers in Massachusetts. We're learning more about the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's removal of eight Native American objects from display. The move complies with new federal regulations to give Native tribes more say on what happens to items culturally important to them. WBR's Ariel Gray has more. The guidelines require museums to get informed consent from affiliated tribal representatives before exhibiting or doing research on certain cultural items. Ethan Lasser chairs the MFA's Art of the Americas and says pulling the items from view is a step in the right direction. The more that museums are uh, in conversation and building relationships with tribal communities around the stewardship of objects like these and um, objects from indigenous uh, cultures, the better. The MFA will remove one textile, two pottery vessels, and five musical instruments over the coming weeks until it can consult with affiliated tribal nations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Ariel Gray. A former Boston police officer has pleaded guilty to assaulting a U.S. Capitol police officer during the January 6th Capitol riots. 52-year-old Joseph Fisher pleaded guilty to a total of eight counts yesterday in federal court in Washington. He'll be sentenced in May. Fisher served on the Boston police force from 1994 to 2016. The forecast is next. 
WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. HabibARCH.com. And Bridgewater State University, ranked 18th in Massachusetts on the Wall Street Journal's 2024 Best Colleges in America list. BridgeW.edu. Got a slight chance of showers this evening, but otherwise lots of clouds, windy, chilly, about 30 for a low. Weekend should be in the mid-30s. Tomorrow we get started with clouds before the sun moves in, kind of windy tomorrow. Then Sunday should be a sunny day on the chilly side once again. 42 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.35. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sarah McCammon. NPR has confirmed that the U.S. military has launched retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria. We'll have more on this as soon as we can. But right now... Gaza's southern border with Egypt is crowded with Palestinians who've been pushed there by Israeli evacuation orders and bombardment. Families are living in tents along the cement border wall, and Egypt is worried they could be forced to cross into its territory. NPR's Aya Batrawi has been following this from Dubai and joins us now. Hi there. Hi, Sarah. So just to set the scene, describe this border between Gaza and Egypt. What does it look like and who is in charge there? So the Israelis called this area the Philadelphia Corridor. It's this small strip of land about seven to eight miles long and only around 300 feet wide. But it's very important because it's the only stretch of Gaza that does not border Israel or the sea, which is also controlled by Israel. And Israel relinquished control of this territory when it withdrew from Gaza in 2005. But in a recent press conference, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the Philadelphia corridor, quote, must be in our hands. And he said there could be no other arrangement that suits Israel's security needs. Okay, but Egypt has said loud and clear that it does not want Israeli troops at that Gaza border or Palestinians pushed into Egypt. What is Egypt's concern here? That's right. Egypt says Israeli troops at its Gaza border would violate its peace treaty with Israel and that it fears, of course, that any displacement of Gazans into Egypt could be permanent and could draw Egypt into the war. I spoke with Maret Mabruk. She's an expert on Egypt at the Middle East Institute in Washington. She says the Camp David peace accords between Egypt and Israel. They've been modified many times over the years, but these changes weren't made unilaterally. They were done with mutual consent. Let's have a listen. There is a treaty, and that treaty very clearly says you're going to be on your side and I'm going to be on my side. We are not going to stray over because that's how wars happen. And she says Egypt's leadership has to take into account public opinion on the streets, which is deeply opposed to Israel's war in Gaza. That was sparked, of course, by the Hamas attacks on Israel that Israel says killed 1,200 people on October 7th. Now, Israel's military response has killed more than 27,000 Palestinians in Gaza, according to its health ministry. Here's Mabruk again. To have your neighbors massacring people on your borders is difficult. To have your neighbors threaten to shove that massacre over onto your borders is untenable. 
Aya, what is the Israeli government saying about how it sees the Egypt-Gaza border at this point in the war? Well, it's not so clear. I mean, the government says its policy is not to push Palestinians out of Gaza, but several far-right ministers of that government say that's exactly what they want. Now, more than a million displaced Palestinians are crammed at that Rafah border, and this week, Israel's defense minister said troops will reach Rafah, raising concerns about where those people will go next. Israel says smuggling tunnels under that Philadelphia corridor from Egypt have been used by militants in Gaza to bring in weapons. And one Israeli news website described this area as a leak in the dam, or in other words, a leak that Israel has to plug. Okay, so what's Egypt's response to that concern? So Egyptian intelligence officials tell NPR there is a proposal for an Arab Gulf state to finance a deep underground wall between Egypt and Gaza that would block smuggling tunnels, one even deeper than the wall that's already there. But they are adamant. There can be no Israeli troops along Egypt's border with Gaza or surveillance activity there. They say that this would be a violation of Egyptian sovereignty. Now, despite these tensions, senior intelligence officials from Egypt and Israel are still talking regularly. And it's that security relationship that has underpinned bilateral ties for more than 40 years. And Egypt is a mediator between Israel and Hamas. And its framework for a truce that it has proposed, maybe even an end to the war and the freeing of Israeli hostages held in Gaza, is being presented to a Hamas delegation this week in Cairo. NPR's Aya Batrawi, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Sarah. Donald Glover and Maya Erskine co-star in Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Glover helped reinvent the 2005 espionage thriller as a streaming series for Amazon's Prime Video. It debuts today. And NPR TV critic Eric Deggins says it's a savvy and entertaining reboot, which emphasizes the personal over James Bond-style theatrics. What would two spies look like in marriage counseling? Well, for one thing, Maya Erskine, who balances playing steely and vulnerable as ambitious spy Jane Smith, can't be honest with a therapist, played by Sarah Paulson, when she describes problems with her husband, Donald Glover's John Smith. I think John's under the impression that our boss favors me. Hmm. Well, he, but he does. I mean, well, he, he wants you to replace me. He asked I, you if, I to replace me. said absolutely not. So you two work together? Yes. yes. And what is it that you two do? We're computer uh, software, software engineers. engineers. Their thinly disguised stories about marital problems make therapy difficult. But when the therapist leaves the room, they say what really bugs them about a mission gone wrong. You almost got me killed. Oh, did you killed? I saved you. You didn't save me. I didn't need your help. Oh, really? Did oh, yeah. you die? Yeah. Are you dead right now? Am I dead right now? Yeah, are you? What? Are you insane? This is the wonderful twist about the modern Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They're spies whose cover is playing a married couple, each of them fighting to figure out how much of their emotional connection is genuine and how much is spy tradecraft. That struggle begins in the first episode, titled First Date, where John and Jane Smith have just been hired by a mysterious spy agency. They meet for the first time in their first day on the job at their fake home, a Tony renovated brownstone in New York City. John opens a mysterious package. State license, banking card, carry permit, and marriage certificate. Including two wedding rings. We're married. Yeah. <laughs> Now. Yeah, it's weird. It's pretty weird. Yeah. It gets weirder. Throughout the series, they face the same issues most new couples face, but it's on a vastly different magnitude 
thanks to their day jobs. The situation also allows for a host of excellent cameo appearances by performers like Paul Dano, who plays a nosy neighbor, Michaela Cole as a beautiful friend of John's who makes Jane seriously jealous, and John Turturro, who plays a rich businessman they accidentally give a little too much truth serum, causing him to be brutally honest about his illegal income during an art auction. Billions and billions of illegal dollars. I I don't feel bad about it at all. I, I, I really don't. I mean, is that totally weird? This is a far different and more expansive canvas than the disappointing 2005 film starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie as assassins in a long marriage. The TV show, co-created by Glover, features many of his creative partners from the TV show Atlanta, including series co-creator Francesca Sloan, director Hiro Murai, and Donald Glover's brother Stephen Glover as a producer. The show also features a black man and Asian woman as characters who reflect their cultural heritage in ways that are modern, relatable, and compelling. This Mr. and Mrs. Smith are new to the spy game and a romance. They don't know much about the shadowy company which hired them, and each of them may not even know the real name of the fake spouse they've entrusted both their life and heart to. It's an incredible reinvention of a middling movie into a TV masterpiece, reinvigorating both spy movies and romance stories in the process. I'm Eric Deggins. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The famous boulevards and winding side streets of Paris are famously clogged with traffic. The city's latest effort to reduce congestion goes before voters on Sunday. If the referendum passes, it will hugely increase parking fees for large vehicles, in particular SUVs. From Paris, NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports. Posters around the city ask, do you want more or less SUV in Paris? The campaign is the latest idea from a mayor who's already carved out more than 500 miles of bike lanes across the city, clawing back space that used to belong to cars. Mayor Anne Hidalgo has also reduced the speed limit to 18 miles an hour. It's no secret that she's no favorite of Paris drivers. Uber driver Julien Marais picks me up in his SUV. He says the referendum is just smoke and mirrors. Because there are already pollution standards for all vehicles driving in Paris, and most SUVs here are hybrid, sometimes you need a bigger car for work. Paris can't ban everything. The referendum being put before Parisian voters this Sunday is not about banning SUVs, but discouraging them by raising street parking rates to as high as $40 an hour. Still, city leaders hope the outcome will send a signal to car makers. David Belliard is in charge of transportation and the transformation of public spaces in Paris. In a recent video, he called the growth of SUV sales in Paris a silent scandal. Why are there so many? Because people and organizations put tons of money into lobbies to influence decisions. We know these SUVs are big money for car makers. This vote goes against those lobbies. Belliard was also in charge of last year's referendum to ban rental electric scooters, which then disappeared off Paris streets overnight. Polls show 60 percent of Parisians support hiking parking fees for SUVs. Théo Ponchel is a pollster with Opinion Way. SUVs are quite negatively seen, but not as much as you could think. He says almost 60 percent of Parisians have a negative opinion of SUVs. 
Still, most Parisians NPR spoke to did not support Sunday's vote. Even tiny car owners, like Pierre Adelphan, who was stepping out of his fiat. It's difficult to, to blame the person to have an SUV because some person use, use the car for professional activity and uh, the price of the transport in Paris are more expensive. Adelphan says most people just have one car. He suspects the mayor is trying to deflect attention from the fact that the city is snarled in traffic and mired in construction projects that have gone over budget. 24-year-old Julien Tellier is filling up a Range Rover at the gas station, but it's not his. He's rented it for work. He says you don't need a car in Paris because the public transport is great. He's against the consultation, too. It's idiotic because people who have SUVs have the money to pay for higher parking. It's always some kind of policy to penalize people and never something positive to wake up our consciences. René Ducoré is squeezing his Land Rover into a tight spot on the street. The 45-year-old restaurateur says it is hard to find a space, but he can also park his electric SUV at a charging station. He didn't know about the referendum. We had gas cars, he says, and they told us to switch to electric. Now they found something else. Ducoré says it's complicated, but he's planning to move out of Paris anyway. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. military has launched an air assault today on dozens of sites in Iraq and Syria used by Iranian-backed militias. It's the start of retaliation for the drone strike that killed three U.S. troops in Jordan last weekend. We're following this developing story, so keep listening. We'll have more at the top of the hour. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices. They include a Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Adds up for commuter rail riders this weekend. There will be no Fitchburg line service tomorrow or Sunday between Littleton and North Station. The MBTA says shuttle buses will take riders to the Alewife T station where they connect to the Red Line. And starting Monday, there will be no Red Line T service between Alewife and Harvard. That closure will last through February 14th. And tonight, Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals will honor its Man of the Year. The group will roast Irish actor Barry Keoghan. He is known for his recent film Saltburn and the Banshees of Inish. And the roast will be held next Tuesday for the group's Woman of the Year, actress Annette Benning. This is 90.9 WBUR, 41 degrees in Boston at 451. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What do these artists have in common? Taylor Swift, Miley Cyrus, John Batiste, SZA, and Olivia Rodrigo. I've made some real
Well, besides being major pop stars, they are all nominated in the album, song, and record of the year categories of this year's Grammy Awards. The awards are on Sunday night, and so let's take a closer look at those major categories in the Grammys with NPR Music's Ann Powers. Hi there. Hello, Ari. Let's start with record of the year. Are there some consensus favorites for the award? Well, you know, it's quite an even playing field this year. Everyone in this category is a consensus favorite. I would say, but Billie Eilish might have the juice behind her with What Was I Made For. This song is very strongly predicted uh, for an Oscar as well as potentially a Grammy. It's a beautiful song. I was listening to it the other day and I thought, wow, Barbara Streisand could sing this song. It's just a classic. When they say she get it from her mama, I'ma say you got it right. But honestly, any of these songs, you know, have their strong followings. Victoria Monet, for example, a new nominee in these top categories and also a Best New Artist nominee. Her On My Mama was like a total anthem this past year, and I think that also might take it. I put that on my mama, on my hood. I look fly, I look good. You can't touch my back, but you could. I look have you got a personal favorite? Well, we were good. We were gone. Ari, I am a longtime Miley Cyrus fan, supporter, defender, <laughs> and I really think it's time. <laughs> I didn't for Miley know that about you. This award and flowers expresses who she is in such a beautiful way. I'm rooting for that one. Well, Record of the Year is different from Song of the Year. Uh, Song of the Year is specifically for songwriting. Anyone nominated in this category catch your attention? Well, the question is, uh, did the voters go for Lana Del Rey's epic, woozy, slightly crazy AMW? <laughs> I think of that one, it would be sort of like the Beatles Revolution number no. 9 winning. You know what I mean? Like a, a really mm -hmm. weird song winning. At the same time, this is the year, the moment, the century of Taylor Swift, and maybe this is the category she takes with Antihero. It's me. We've talked about song and record of the year, the third big award album of the year. Uh, features some of the same names. Who's considered a favorite here? I do think SZA's SOS has a strong chance because it was commercially such a juggernaut. Give me a second, give me a minute. Now I'll can let you finish. Yeah, that's right, I need commissions on mine. On the top of the charts for months, you know, and it is a classic of new R&B, so I'm rooting for that. This ain't no one inside, can't tell you. 
Come back, I'm so greasy. Everything's so needy. Punk try to replace me, but the stakes is too high. They can't survive. Consensus critical favorites don't always line up with Grammy nominations. Why do you think that is? And has that also proven to be the case this year? It's definitely less the case than it used to be. I mean, are you probably remember back in the day when critics supported, you know, indie rock and loud transgressive music and that stuff rarely got nominated at the Grammys. Now um, critics love mainstream pop as much as they love underground sound. So I think it does line up with critical consensus, but at the same time, some things have been overlooked. Amaray's album Fountain Baby was I think the best reviewed album of the year made the top of many year-end lists. And Amore is only nominated for her collaboration with Janelle Monet on Monet's album, The Age of Pleasure. So there's still a tiny divide between critics and Grammy voters. This is also a year that is dominated by women. What do you make of that? In some ways, popular music belongs to women in the 21st century in general. But we got to look at this year, Ari. It, it is the year of Barbie. Watch me. Femininity is in. That sounds so shallow, but it, I feel like there is this sort of general cultural embrace or, or renewed embrace of all aspects of womanhood and unapologetic femininity. I mean, you know, so many people are rooting for Taylor Swift and her romance with Travis Kelsey. There's nothing more conventional than a beautiful blonde and a football player. So uh, not just women, but this idea of womanhood is sort of back in the cultural spotlight. And can we end with a nod to Joni Mitchell, who remarkably has never performed at the Grammys before, but that's about to change? Yes, I'm so excited for that. Someone on social media said they were gunning for, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a SZA, Joni, Lana collaboration, maybe on a song like A Case of You. That would be awesome. But I'm expecting a version of the Joni jam with Brandy Carlile by her side. I've looked at clouds from both sides now. From up and down And still somehow It's cloud illusions That I recall I really don't know clouds I really don't know clouds at all Any appearance by Joni Mitchell in the 2020s is, is a treasure. She's just a beam of light these days, and I'm looking forward to seeing her in her finery on stage. And Powers of NPR Music, always great to talk to you. Wonderful, Ari. Tears and fears and feeling proud To say I love you right out loud Dreams and skills and circus crowds I've looked at life that way All but now You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, 
a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. From the Kresge Foundation, established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're going to have an early spring in the unimpeachable, irreproachable, and deeply considered opinion of Massachusetts official Groundhog. That would be Miss G, who lives at the Mass Audubon Drumlin Farm Wildlife Sanctuary in Lincoln. Miss G did not see her shadow today. No surprise since it's cloudy. This is the fifth consecutive year she's predicted an early spring. Sometimes she's even been right. It's 459. I'm here now, host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. About one hour ago, the United States launched airstrikes at sites in Iraq and Syria. They're in retaliation for the attack that killed three American reservists in Jordan last weekend. The administration says it will not strike anywhere inside Iran. Today is Friday, February 2nd, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, more than 800 officials in the U.S. and Europe have signed a letter criticizing their government support for Israel's war in Gaza. And South Carolina Representative Jim Clyburn is a storied kingmaker in Democratic politics. Coming up, Clyburn's state's new role in holding the first Democratic primary and his advice for President Biden. I said to the, to the president, let's just stay focused on the family, stay focused uh, on the community. More from Congressman Clyburn coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. has begun retaliatory strikes in response to last week's drone attack that killed three U.S. service members and wounded dozens more at a base in Jordan. U.S. military officials are confirming airstrikes against Iranian-backed militia and Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps and more than 85 targets in Iraq and Syria. The Biden administration had previously said the U.S. would carry out a multi-tiered retaliation, possibly over a period of days, in response to the deadly drone attack last Sunday. Meanwhile, the dignified transfer of the three soldiers killed in Jordan took place today at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware. NPR's Tamara Keith reports President Biden attended along with First Lady Jill Biden and others. Biden had a deeply pained expression on his face and held his hand over his heart as the three flag-draped transfer cases were carefully carried from a C-5 military transport plane to a van waiting on the tarmac. Sergeant William Rivers, Sergeant Brianna Moffat, and Sergeant Kennedy Saunders were Army reservists serving at an outpost in Jordan near the Syrian border when they were killed. Earlier, family members of the fallen met with President Biden and the First Lady. They observed the solemn movement from a small section of white folding chairs set up on the tarmac, out of view from members of the media who traveled with the president. Tamara Keith, 
NPR News. In a new court filing, Georgia DA Fonnie Willis argues motions to disqualify her from the case in the Trump in, uh, election in interference case should be dismissed. Member station WABE in Atlanta, Sam Greenglass reports. Willis's 176-page response came nearly a month after defendant Michael Roman alleged a disqualifying conflict of interest that tainted the charges against him. Former President Donald Trump later joined Roman's motion to dismiss the case. Prosecutors are arguing that that Willis and Wade's relationship presents no personal or financial conflict. They wrote that the relationship began after Wade joined the case and the two prosecutors never shared bank accounts or a household and covered their own travel expenses. Judge Scott McAfee has set a February 15th hearing to weigh the motions. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. U.S. employers added jobs last month. More from NPR's Scott Horsley. January's job gain, as reported by the Labor Department this morning, was much stronger than forecasters had expected. Job growth for November and December was also revised up by a total of 126,000 jobs. The nation's job market has been unusually resilient despite the highest interest rates in more than two decades. Unemployment has now been under 4% for two full years. Industries adding jobs last month include health care, retail, manufacturing, and business services. Average wages in January were up 4.5% from a year ago. That likely outpaced inflation over the last year, giving workers a real boost in their buying power. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Unions that represent Stewart Healthcare workers say they're pleased by the company's announcement today that it secured financing to temporarily keep operating its nine Massachusetts hospitals. But as WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, the unions also hope that a long-term plan is developed soon. Two unions representing about half of the state's 16,000 steward workers say they're relieved by the company's announcement to keep hospitals open, but they want a clear plan about how the financing deal will affect the system long term. Tim Foley with 1199 SEIU is hopeful. The announcement today that there's uh, some additional financing to keep the facilities open, I think is a good development, but we still need a plan. Stewart says the deal will give it capital and time to consider how to transfer ownership of some of its hospitals. The company has been in talks with the state and the unions about how to handle its financial difficulties. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. An attorney for the Newton School Committee told a judge this afternoon that an agreement to end the ongoing teacher strike is possible within the next few hours. The strike by teachers has closed schools for 11 days. Talks resumed this afternoon with a union in the city saying their contract sticking points were close to being resolved. And Boston Public School students and their families will not have to pay to visit several museums and cultural institutions Sunday. That's thanks to the launch of a new program that will run the first and second Sundays of each month through August. Mayor Michelle Wu says accessibility to museums is important to stimulate and inspire children outside the classroom. All of their senses being enlivened, they are here with their peers, with their family, with their community members, with the people who make them feel like they could do anything in the world. The Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Institute of Contemporary Art, and the Boston Children's Museum are among the locations taking part. Also, the Franklin Park Zoo and the New England Aquarium. In the forecast, slight chance of showers this evening. Otherwise, just a lot of clouds around. Windy, chilly, about 30 degrees for a low tonight. Tomorrow, we should get a start with clouds, but then eventually the sunshine moves in. Windy once again, and then Sunday should be sunny. A little bit chilly again. Weekend temperatures in the 30s. 40 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. 
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. And the Annie E. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The United States has launched retaliatory strikes at numerous sites in Iraq and Syria. The airstrikes began around 4 p.m. Eastern time. They are in retaliation for an attack that killed three Army reservists in Jordan. Now, this is a developing story, and Parish Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here to give us all the details he has. Hey, Tom. Hey, Mary Louise. Give us the details. Where exactly were these strikes? Who exactly were they targeting? Well, we're told there were Air Force uh, long-range bombers flown from the United States, uh, Navy aircraft uh, from the region, and they targeted 85 targets uh, with 125 munitions against both Iranian-backed militias as well as Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, military officials in both Iraq and Syria. Dozens of targets hit, again, uh, headquarters, command and control, rocket and missile sites, drone storage facilities. So it's notable the U.S. is going after the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, actual Iranian military officials. The U.S. has said Iran has supplied and supported the militia groups. So really, you're taking it right to Iran with some of these strikes. Okay. Although, to be clear, these are not strikes inside Iran. These are in Correct. Iraq, Iraq and, and Syria. Syria. Okay. One-off strikes, or do we know how long this might go? We don't know if these current strikes will last well into the night. Uh, What we do know is the U.S. officials have said they would mount a tiered approach that could last days, if not longer. So clearly this can go on for quite some time. And the militia groups have been, of course, attacking U.S. troops for years. But there has been an uptick, Mary Louise, since the Israeli-Gaza war started in October. So far, at least 165 attacks on U.S. troops since then with some minor injuries. But last weekend, we saw for the first time U.S. service members were killed when a drone strike hit their uh, remote base in Jordan. And again, three Army Reserve soldiers from Georgia lost their lives. Talk us through the U.S. thinking here, because since the war between Israel and Hamas began, we have heard the Biden administration say over and over, we do not want a wider war. We seem to be watching the war widen and now escalating. So help us square that. Right. They've repeatedly said, we don't want to widen the Israeli-Gaza war. We don't want to go to war with Iran. But Iran, especially its Revolutionary Guard, has vowed retaliation for any U.S. strikes. And of course, when you're talking about an ongoing tiered approach, you're obviously widening the war by your actions. It's also possible we could see some type of cyber attacks against Iranian facilities, maybe Iran itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And these could be secretive, but officials have talked about that being a possibility. Capitol Hill has also been informed that that is a possibility going forward. And then just to the timing, this afternoon, President Biden and and the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, were uh, attending the dignified transfer of the soldiers killed in that attack in Jordan. Is there any connection, do we know, between the timing of that uh, visual and the beginning of these attacks? You know, at this point, I'm not sure if there was any connection between the ceremony today and the airstrikes. The president said earlier this week he had decided on attack options. Capitol Hill was briefed on Wednesday, so we kind of knew it was coming. I was told the attacks could begin either today or Saturday, weather depending. Weather depending, and here we are. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman telling us what we know and what we don't about this afternoon's U.S. airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. And for more analysis, let's bring in retired military general officer Michael Nagata. General Nagata, welcome. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll just start here. What was your first reaction to the news about these strikes? My first reaction it probably mirrors the, the reaction of many people across the region. Um, will this have the effect the United States is seeking? As we've already heard, the United States does not want a wider war, but it obviously felt compelled to conduct a reprisal attack. Does this make anything better? I don't think we were going to know that for at least several days, maybe longer. How will you start to form an opinion about that? What will you be looking for? I guess I'd be looking for several things. First and foremost, I'd be looking for a change in Iranian behavior that is beneficial to the U.S. and its allies in the region, whether it is behavior by the Iranian state and its uh, organizations like the Quds Force or the IRGC or its proxies, of which there are many proxies. If we see a a behavior change that is beneficial to us, then we'll know. If we don't, then we'll know something else, which is that it's not having the effect we want. You've said the administration doesn't want a wider war. How would you define the goals here? What are the administration's strategic goals? Beyond the statement, we don't want a wider war, which I certainly sympathize with, um, I'm not unaware of any more granular description of what that means that has come from any senior U.S. policymaker so far. So it could mean a lot of things. It could mean something as extreme as a complete capitulation and reversal of Iranian behavior in the region. That is something I do not expect to happen. It could be something much more modest, such as a slight reduction in attacks on U.S. and allied uh, shipping and personnel. Um, That's an effect, but it's not a particularly satisfying effect. After the news of these three soldiers' deaths, President Biden said that the United States would respond. It is responding. What do you make of the administration's calculus here about how to respond? Well, I I suspect that its choices were fairly constrained. I seriously doubt anybody wanted to countenance uh, a major land incursion of any kind, particularly given the enormously sophisticated ability we have to conduct airstrikes or missile strikes. So that was the the, uh, low-risk option that I'm sure many policymakers and other senior leaders in the government were attracted to. I probably would have been attracted to it as well. But again, it... Will it have the effect that we hope for, which is both making Iran pay a price for what they have done to our three service members on all the other attacks, but most importantly, will it change their behavior or the behavior of its proxies? As I've already said, I don't think we're going to know for some time. I will tell you I am personally dubious. Briefly, uh, how concerned are you about a, a broader spiral of violence? I am concerned. I I can't really quantify how concerned I am because this region is not only so complex and volatile, it also has the dimension of being highly unpredictable. Um, Most external actors, whether it's the U.S. or in Europe or anywhere else in the world, most actors around the world don't do a particularly good job of predicting what the future trajectory of actors in the Middle East is going to be. I think that's that hard reality will play out again here. Retired military general officer Michael Nagata giving us analysis of today's retaliatory airstrikes in Syria and Iraq. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome.
And let's stay with Middle East-related developments and word that U.S. government officials who oppose the Biden administration's policy in Gaza are now joining forces with colleagues in Europe. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports on an open letter signed by more than 800 civil servants on both sides of the Atlantic. Opponents of the U.S. approach have sent private letters, signed dissent cables, and held vigils. Now they're taking it a step further with an open letter signed by civil servants in the U.S. and about a dozen countries in Europe. That's according to Josh Paul, the one State Department official who quit over U.S. policy on Gaza last year. And I think that sort of outreach across the ocean uh, by civil servants who share a common set of values uh, and a common set of concerns uh, is truly unprecedented. The names weren't made public, but NPR has learned about 80 Americans signed it, and nearly half of them have served in government for over a decade. The letter says that Israel has shown no boundaries in its military operations in Gaza, calling the tens of thousands of civilian deaths preventable. And it says the ongoing military operations have not contributed to Israel's goal of freeing all the hostages held by Hamas since the October 7th attack. The Biden administration says it's working on a new hostage deal and urging Israel to do more to protect civilians in Gaza. But Paul says U.S. policy is clearly not working, and those signing the letter say the U.S. should be withholding military aid and using all levers possible to press Israel to abide by international humanitarian law. Experts in you know, their fields in the civil service feel that they are being ignored uh, or deliberately silenced by their own governments and feel they have an obligation as civil servants to the public uh, and to the truth to, to do good, to advance the interests of the nations that they serve. One of the signatories says the State Department treats the dissenters as if they just have emotional or personal problems with the war in Gaza. But this person, who has 25 years of experience in the federal government and who asked not to be named for fear of reprisal, says the real concern is that the policy is hurting U.S. national security interests and weakening America's moral standing in the world. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is heading back to the Middle East this weekend. His spokesman, Matthew Miller, says the secretary has made a point of meeting with his critics. That doesn't mean, obviously, that we agree with Every person that we meet with, it doesn't mean that we expect them to agree with everything that we say. Of course, that's not true. Um, But we find the give and take valuable. And yes, it very much does inform his thinking and informs uh, the decisions that he makes. One official who attended a town hall with Blinken this week says they heard just more of the same talking points on Gaza. The secretary also met with Palestinian Americans, though the Institute for Middle East Understanding says more people turned down the invitation than showed up, calling it a box-checking exercise by an administration that could do more to end the, quote, horror in Gaza. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Strong jobs numbers from last month. Hiring was up as U.S. employers added an unexpected 353,000 jobs. That story is coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. And Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash. Cleaning cars since 1966 with 22 New England locations. Learn more about Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited at scrubadub.com. A dozen stunning long-stemmed red roses. How about two dozen? Send the perfect gift to your Valentine and support WBUR at WBUR.org. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent today. S&P rose for a fourth straight week, picking up more than one percent to finish at a record high. And the Nasdaq grew by one and three-quarters percent. The Vineyard Gazette Media Group has named a new publisher. Former WBUR reporter Monica Brady-Myroff will become publisher beginning March 11th. Former publisher Jane Seagrave will continue with the Vineyard Gazette as a member of the board. The Vineyard Gazette Media Group is the largest media organization on Martha's Vineyard. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org slash summer. And the ICA, art from the Caribbean and beyond in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, icaboston.org. We've got one more cloudy night ahead, then another cloudy morning, and then we should see the sunshine. Should gradually break through during the day tomorrow, a windy, dry, and chilly day right about the mid-30s. Sunday should bring bright sunshine, maybe a few clouds around. Temperatures should not break out of the mid-30s, though. We could see the sun last early into next week. This is 90.9 WBUR, 40 degrees in Boston at 521. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers in Columbia, South Carolina, where tomorrow the state holds the first in the nation Democratic primary. President Biden is expected to easily win his party's first official 2024 contest. And voters have seen a lot of the president and his allies, including South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn in recent days. They've been reminding people that the ballots cast in South Carolina this week will have an impact on how Biden is viewed across the country, just like four years ago. But the truth is, I wouldn't be here without the Democratic voters of South Carolina, and that's a fact. Congressman Clyburn, it's great to be here in Columbia with you. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Oh, thanks for having me back. So voters here in South Carolina will have their say tomorrow, and this is the first time that your state has been first in the packing order for the Democratic primary process. And I have to say, I was here four years ago, and things look a lot different in the Democratic primary this time around. So what does that mean we should take away from the results of the election here in South Carolina tomorrow? How will you know that the president has had a good night? Well, I'll be going precinct by precinct, uh, county by county, uh, looking at the returns. 
Uh, we're not going to get anywhere near the turnout that we got before. Uh, this is almost an uncontested. Right. I'm going to see how far we got beyond New Hampshire's percentage. I think you got somewhere like 67% mm -hmm. in New Hampshire and not being on the ballot. Uh, I, I'm going to beat that since we do have a ballot. You, as many people know, are a longtime ally of President Biden. He credits your endorsement four years ago with him becoming president of the United States. What advice have you given the president and his team as we're in this moment in the campaign where national polling averages and polling in some swing states even show President Biden running even with or in some cases trailing former President Trump, the likely Republican nominee? My father was a minister. Uh, he thought he was training me for the ministry. He may have been. I just didn't hear the call in. Uh, and he always told me, pick three things. If you ever give a speech, three things. Us ministers, he would say, it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. With you politicians, this is what I'm going to do for you, this is what I'm going to do for your family, and this is what I'm going to do for your community. And I've just said to the, to the president, let's just stay focused on the family, stay focused uh, on the community, and let people know exactly uh, what you're going to do for them. And he's done that. Our colleagues who cover the election and I and our team have heard from voters in states across the country. And one thing that stuck out to me, there was a voter in New Hampshire that spoke to our colleague, Tamara Keith. And this voter told her that they wish that they could vote for something rather than simply casting a vote against someone else. What would you say, as a close ally of the president, that this president stands for in 2024? Freedom and democracy. Everybody's got something to vote for. To pass on to their children, their grandchildren, freedoms and democracy that this autocrat vows to take away. I want to shift the focus of the conversation now to black voters who, of course, are essential for Democrats to turn out, which is something I do not have to tell you. In 2020, black voters made up about 60 percent of the electorate here. And there are some polls that suggest that former President Trump is gaining support among black voters. President Biden's approval rating is down. Do you see that here in South Carolina? And why do you think that is? <laughs> well... No, I don't see that here in South Carolina, to answer your question. Uh, I don't see that in, anywhere in the country. The biggest picture on the wall of my Bob shop is Joe Biden, even bigger than the one they got on me. And I talk to my barber all the time about the conversations coming through there. Uh, and everything he says to me about the conversations indicates one thing. People are being attracted to bombosity. They are attractive to loud noise. They aren't attractive uh, to quiet diplomacy. One of the best examples I know, everybody's saying ceasefire. What do you think Blinken is doing over in the Middle East right now? What do you think Burns is doing in the Middle East right now? Uh, the quiet negotiations that you have to do to get to a ceasefire is one thing. They're paying attention to the loud noise coming from the other side, yelling, cease fire. And so I say to pe people all the time, if you're more attracted to headlines than headway, then you'd be more attracted to the other side. It sounds like you don't put much stock in these polls. You don't think the president, you are not concerned, it does not sound like, about the president standing with black voters. Is that right? I'm concerned about how we message this campaign. I'm concerned about whether or not as I say, and everybody keep misinterpreting this, when I say smash through the mega wall... Yeah, what does that mean? That means that wall is built out there by the lack of information uh, that people are reporting. 
for some reason, no matter what this president accomplishes, because he doesn't do it with the style that people uh, feel should be there, uh, then they don't report it. I do want to ask you a question about the issue of foreign policy. You Mm -hmm. brought up the issue of the conflict in the Middle East. And as I talk to young voters here, but across the country, it is an issue that keeps coming up, particularly the high death toll in Gaza. And President Biden, as you know, has repeatedly faced criticism from protesters at events who have shouted their thoughts on this issue. And I want to ask you, particularly among young voters who seem to care deeply about the situation in the Middle East, are you concerned that this could cause some young voters to turn away from the president's campaign? Yes, I am. And it's unfortunate. Everybody's for a ceasefire. Netanyahu cannot have a bigger critic than Jim Clyburn. I see the headlines every day these days of how upset Joe Biden is with Netanyahu. But Netanyahu cannot be the focus of your attention. It's got to be bringing an end uh, to this conflict and setting up a two-state solution that Joe Biden has been for forever. Trump is not for it. Netanyahu is not for it. So how do you get there? And so I would say to young people, as I've said to my own family members, who seem to think that because Joe Biden isn't having a press conference, saying, yo, I'm seeking a ceasefire, he is. You are a former history teacher, and I do have to ask you a question about that. I mean, it's not overstating things to suggest that this year's election is one that could have profound global implications. If you were back in the classroom today, how would you put the stakes that this country faces in November into context? If I were in my classroom today, I would be spending every day teaching about the election of 1876 in the United States of America. Tell us why. I would be saying to them, Reconstruction came to an end by one vote. Jim Crow became the law of the land by one vote. Or are you going to be the one vote that brings it in to what everybody has called the second Reconstruction? Let's hope not. South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn, thank you as always. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. The Bruins and Celtics both have the night off tonight, but some Bruins players could get some ice time tonight. David Posternock will compete in the NHL skills competition up in Toronto. Bruins goalie Jeremy Swayman could see some time in net tonight as well. Both players will take part in tomorrow's NHL All-Star game. And former Red Sox general manager Theo Epstein is reuniting with owners of the team. Epstein has been named senior advisor to Fenway Sports Group pending approval. The company owns the Sox, Pro Hockey's Pittsburgh Penguins, and the Liverpool Football Club, as well as other entities. Epstein will advise the group's owners on sporting operations. He served as Red Sox general manager from 2003 to 2011 and led the team to two World Series. Overnight tonight, lots of clouds around, temperatures about 30 degrees. And for tomorrow, should have some sunshine gradually coming in tomorrow. And same thing as well for Sunday. Lots of sunshine, temperatures over the weekend in the mid-30s.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Showcase Cinemas and the Museum of African American History, with special screenings of Harriet, Malcolm X, Loving, and Toni Morrison. ShowcaseCinemas.com. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The FBI says it's aware of more than 500 so-called swatting instances around the country since it started tracking the phenomenon last year. NPR's Odette Youssef says the potentially dangerous hoax has targeted dozens of public and private figures in recent weeks. Swatting is when someone makes a false call about a crime meant to draw a large law enforcement presence to a location. In some cases, it has resulted in deaths. Among those targeted is Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley, who recently disclosed an occurrence at her family home in South Carolina. While the ruse appears to be on the increase, Jared Holt of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue says it's too early to call it a new trend in political violence. This could be a trend. This could also just as easily be the work of three or four bored teenagers. In recent days, the FBI arrested a teenager who allegedly targeted mosques, historically black colleges and universities, and other locations in a swatting for hire scheme. Odette Youssef, NPR News. A proposed ban on menthol cigars and cigarettes remains in limbo since the Biden administration put it on hold. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has the latest. Menthol is most heavily marketed and consumed in black communities, where over 80 percent of smokers use menthol. It's a big reason black men face the highest rate of lung cancer and why public health advocates point to menthol tobacco as a clear contributor to racial disparities in health. The White House put off finalizing the ban until March and has agreed to hold meetings with groups opposed to the rule. Meanwhile, in places like California and Massachusetts, where menthol bans have already taken effect, the industry is marketing menthol-like tobacco to circumvent those rules. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Court hearings will be held in public for the 28 people suspected of being customers of a commercial sex ring. Federal prosecutors say the ring operated in luxury apartments in Cambridge and Watertown, as well as in the Washington, D.C. area. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports on the ruling today from a justice on the state's highest court. Associate Justice Frank Gaziano agreed with the Cambridge clerk magistrate's decision that the hearings will be public, but he said the documents outlining why the 28 people were summoned to court will not be released. Gaziano said open hearings will promote public confidence in the judiciary by demonstrating that people are treated equally. When the alleged operators of the ring were arrested, federal authorities said the customers are prominent individuals and they referred their names to Cambridge police to determine whether criminal charges might be filed. Typically, clerk-magistrate hearings are not public, but WBUR and other media requested access to the hearings and the supporting documents. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker.
Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is calling on the federal government to address the rise in childhood trauma as a result of COVID. Presley says federal data show nearly half of young people in the country have faced mental health disorders at some point. She says that includes grief, depression, and neglect. Presley is asking the Secretary of Health and Human Services to find ways to tackle childhood trauma, especially in lower-income communities and communities of color. And more than 2 billion gallons of runoff mixed with raw sewage was discharged into the Merrimack River last year. That's a disturbing new record, more than doubling the previous record. Kurt Rogers is executive director of the Merrimack River Watershed Council. We can't say that we didn't expect it, but we were pretty shocked. I mean, it's 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 a staggering amount of sewage that was put in the river. The problem gets worse when rain or flooding overwhelms sewer systems, and that's happening more often as climate change drives more extreme rainfall. Cities in the rivershed that are responsible for discharges are working to fix their sewer systems. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lesley University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Cloudy tonight, then the first weekend of February should turn out pretty nice. Chilly tomorrow in the mid-30s, a lot of sunshine, though, some fair weather clouds around. Same thing for Sunday, mostly sunny skies, a cool wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. 41 degrees now in Boston. The time is 5.36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com. From Indeed, designed to be an end to end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. And I'm Sarah McCammon. January was anything but dry for the U.S. job market. Today, we learned the economy added far more jobs last month than forecasters had expected. It's like employers threw a party and practically everybody was invited. As a result, though, we may have to wait a little bit longer for inflation watchdogs at the Federal Reserve to take the wraps off the punch bowl, that is, by lowering interest rates. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain it all. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sarah. Okay, so every time it looks like the job market is slowing down, the economy seems to throw us a curveball. What's going on? Yeah, this month is more of a fastball. Uh, the economy added 353,000 jobs in January, way more than we expected. And what's more, economist Sarah House of Wells Fargo notes that unlike some previous months, when a lot of hiring was concentrated in just a handful of industries, last month saw job gains pretty much across the board. You saw gains in construction, you saw gains in manufacturing, retail, transportation, professional business services. And that signals that we're not having to rely on just one or two industries to add jobs. Job gains for November and December were also revised up a lot, and the unemployment rate held steady at a low, low 3.7 percent. 
you know, I was wondering what kind of job, Scott, you just answered that, <laughs> all kinds of jobs. But with such low unemployment, where are all these new workers coming from? Yeah, this is one of the big stories the last year or so. A lot of people who had been sidelined by the pandemic have now come back into the workforce. Uh, in some cases, they are still working remotely. The Labor Department says almost 23 percent of employees worked from home last month, which is more than twice the share of remote workers back before the pandemic. Sarah House says that newfound flexibility is enabling a lot more people to join or rejoin the workforce. Remote work, I think, has helped draw some workers that maybe either didn't like to commute, couldn't commute into into the jobs market, both on a part-time and full-time basis. So this has been one of the factors why it seems like uh, women's participation has increased over the past year. Another big reason employers have been able to keep adding jobs month after month is the rebound in immigration. The foreign-born workforce grew more than 4% last year, while the native-born workforce barely budged. So it sounds like a pretty good time for anybody working or looking for work, but it might be a problem, right, for the Federal Reserve. Why? Yeah. Look, the Fed wants a good job market. I mean, one of the Fed's jobs is promoting maximum employment. But its other big job, the one we've all been focused on for the last couple of years, is fighting inflation. And the Fed mainly does that through higher interest rates. Now, inflation has come down a lot, and the Fed is getting close to the point where it thinks it can start to cut interest rates, but it's not there yet. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said this week he and his colleagues probably won't cut interest rates uh, in uh, at their next meeting in March. They want to be confident that inflation's headed all the way back down to 2%. And it's hard to get there if wages are still going up rapidly, especially in service industries like restaurants or auto shops where wages are a big part of the cost. Now, today's report shows average wages in January were up 4.5% from a year ago. And House says that's probably too high for the Fed's comfort zone. The Fed is not convinced that they have won the fight against inflation. I think the increase that we saw in average hourly earnings is is certainly something that's going to give the Fed pause. Now, the odds of a rate cut in May are also a little bit lower now than they were before this jobs report, although House thinks a May rate cut is still a possibility. We are going to get a couple more uh, readings on both inflation and the job market uh, before then. We also got some good news this week about productivity. Workers got more productive at the end of last year. And that allows employers to pay more without having to raise prices. NPR's Scott Horsley summing it up. Thanks so much, Scott. You're welcome. Tomorrow marks one year since a freight train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. It was carrying tons of hazardous materials, sparking a massive fire and raising a number of health and environmental concerns. I spent some time this week in East Palestine to get a sense of how it has changed over the past year. While I was there, I sat down with the town's mayor, Trent Conaway. He spent the past year trying to get the town back on its feet, and a big part of that is dealing with the major divisions that have developed in the community in the year since the derailment, about how dangerous things still are, about how Norfolk Southern responded, and about how the town should move forward. I asked Conaway what he makes of the divide. You know, people just don't know what to think. You know, we still have doubts and thoughts in our head, too, like what's going to happen in 15 years? Is there going to be a cancer cluster here and stuff like that? But... I guess we won't truly know till it happens. That's why I wrote the letter to the president to come here, see for yourself. Do I support the president? No. Would I vote for the man again? No. But you need to come. You need to see what's going on here and, you know, see for yourself that, you know, you do have residents that are concerned about their future and the leader of the free world should step up and say, hey, we're going to help take care of you. You've expressed frustration in the past that it's taken so long for the president to visit. Yes. 
Absolutely. And everybody said, well, I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth because this morning we announced that, you know, we're coming to visit. And then this afternoon they say, well, you invited him. Well, yeah, I invited him, but you know, I think that's what his job is, but this is a nonpartisan town. So when I run, there's no D or R beside my name. It's just my name. Had you explicitly invited him before? Because that seemed to be a point of contention in the news over the last day or so. I mean, I never officially invited him. I said he's more than welcome to come. I've always said from day one, I don't know what he's actually going to do here. Now I think, if anything, it would be just to prove to people that, hey, all your agencies are saying this is safe. Come here and, you know, put your money where your mouth is and prove that it is safe to be here. So We see the EPA down the street. There has been a big federal response to this. Are you happy with the federal response? You know, it was slow there at the beginning, I will say. But, you know, they stepped it up. I can't say enough about Michael Regan, the head of the EPA. Always, if I need to take call and ask something, it's either him or Deborah Shore. I can get on the phone and ask them and, you know, they get right back to me. Pete Buttigieg is, every time I've needed something and I called, even if it was 7.30 on a Friday night, he calls and answered. You know, I could hear kids in the background and playing. And so, I mean, you know, he stepped up and I appreciate things like that. Yeah. A year later, are things better or worse than you thought they'd be in the immediate aftermath of that crash? Uh, they're significantly better than I thought it would be. Tell you what, February 6th, 7th of last year, I did not know if we'd even have a town this year. You know, I mean, it was it was pretty dark, especially when, you know, we chose to do the vent and burn, but I'd still do the same. So that was the safest thing to ensure the safety of our village residents. And going back to that divide that we talked about, how do you as a leader in this village deal with that? How do you get the 10 and the 10 to stop walking past each other and, and be in the same community again? You just give them as many details and facts and figures as you can. And at some point, there's not much you can do, but just hope that they see what... I don't want to say see what you're trying to put forward because you never want to you know, indoctrinate anybody, you know, and try to put thoughts in somebody's head. You just, you want them to make their own decisions. Yeah. Um, I was scared. I mean, I was, I was just like anybody else. I mean, I, I'm a husband and a father helping make a decision of, you know, what we we're going to do in this town. And it, it was rough. It was, you know, it, I had thoughts too, like, is this really what, you know, is this the right thing? Is this, this new ground for all of us? So it's been a very interesting year. Yeah. So Mayor Conaway, thanks for talking to us. All right. Thank you. You can hear more from Scott's trip to East Palestine, Ohio, including a tour of the site where the train derailed, tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. The end of an NFL season often brings unemployment, in a sense. Teams that feel like they underperformed fire their head coaches, hoping for a shakeup. Well, the Super Bowl is still to come, and already eight teams who got rid of their coaches have hired new ones. That tells us something about where the league is headed. To talk about it, let's bring in Lindsay Jones, senior NFL editor for The Ringer. Hi, Lindsay. Welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start off by talking about who did not get hired. Bill Belichick, who won many Super Bowls leading the New England Patriots, was newly on the market, but he remains unemployed. Why do you think that teams stayed away from him? 
It really is the most interesting part of this head coaching cycle to me is the fact that everybody assumed that somebody, one of these other teams, was going to want Bill Belichick. Of course you would want Bill Belichick, right? He's widely considered the greatest coach of all time. I think this comes down to what NFL owners what sort of power structure they want and who they want leading the organization. And he's also kind of an all-powerful coach, top-down control, everything starting and ending with Bill Belichick. And it seems like, at least this cycle, teams didn't want that. You know, another thing that stands out, five of the eight new coaches specialize in defense. And the trend for years has been that offensive-minded coaches have been preferred typically. Is there a shift in the works here? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a little bit of a difference here where the trend for the last five years or so has been to hire the hottest, youngest offensive coordinator, a play caller who worked for Sean McVay or Kyle Shanahan, who was really on the cutting edge of offensive football. And a couple of those candidates this year didn't get jobs. That's a notable shift to me. I see that NFL owners are looking for something different. I think they were looking around the league at maybe some of what's been happening in terms of some of the best coaches, what the best defenses are doing to the Shanahan and McVay offenses, and looked for something different this time. Another shift that's happening is in terms of diversity. You know, for years, the NFL has struggled with coaching diversity. Players are majority black and people of color, but head coaches have mostly been white. But I gather there's there's been a shift in that this offseason as well. Well, I think if we look at the numbers, when we talk about the, the ethnic breakdown of this new head coaching class, there were eight new head coaches hired. Four are from racial minorities. There are three new black head coaches and one, Dave Canales, the new coach in Carolina, is of Hispanic descent. So, you know, league officials, I think, will look at this and say it's a win, right? I mean, there's been some progress, but I don't think it's the end goal by any means. We're also seeing a continuing trend toward younger coaches, people in their 30s and early 40s. What's that about? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just becoming much more commonplace. Assistants are rising the ranks faster, and we've seen success from some of the younger coaches who have been hired in recent cycles. NFL owners are more comfortable, I think, turning over their franchises to guys in their late 30s, early 40s than they were before. And now there really is this fraternity of guys who really kind of came up together coaching against each other. And it's just it's becoming a little bit more of a of a younger coach's game, especially in an offseason when Bill Belichick lost his job. Pete Carroll, I mean, these are coaches that are in their 70s are not going to be coaching next year. So the big question becomes, do they re-enter the fray next offseason and get jobs for 2025? That's Lindsay Jones, senior NFL editor for The Ringer. Thanks so much for talking with us, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being with us on this Friday evening. The U.S. Central Command forces have conducted airstrikes in Iraq and Syria over the past two hours against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guards. The strikes are retaliation for the killing of three American soldiers in Jordan over the weekend. That story is coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. program in business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions February 9th and 21st. And Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare, built on clinical expertise and equity. 
Learn more about rewriting healthcare at bmc.org. Overcast skies tonight and then tomorrow clouds should eventually peel back to let the sunshine in. A windy and dry day tomorrow could be in the mid-30s. Sunshine on Sunday again in the mid-30s. Hey, it's Ben Brock Johnson, executive producer of WBUR Podcasts. My mom turns 81 years old this month. She is many things, a poet, an activist, an extremely creative cook who makes pink bread with my daughter every week. Among her tireless edits, her experiments in the kitchen, good and not so good, her efforts to raise awareness about our climate, my mom somehow raised me and my older brother. This Valentine's Day, I'm thinking about what Herculean feats decades of love can do. I'm so thankful for what my mom has given me and for what she's given the world. If there's someone from your life and you want to tell them how much you love them this Valentine's Day in a meaningful way, consider sending them Winston Flowers from WBUR. And your support will help us tell more stories every day. Check out our choices at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The actor Carl Weathers died yesterday in Los Angeles. He was 76 years old. And here's Chloe Veltman reports that Weathers was best known for his roles in The Mandalorian, Happy Gilmore, and his star turn in the first four Rocky films. As heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed, Carl Weathers projected pure power in the ring against Sylvester Stallone. His character was all swagger. Man, they're afraid. Hell, they know everybody in the world's gonna see this fight and none of them got a prayer whipping me. So they're making excuses so they don't have to be the chump to get whipped in front of the whole civilized world. But Weathers told Terry Gross on WHYY's Fresh Air in 1988, he knew nothing about boxing when he auditioned for the role. I had never boxed, I'd never had gloves on, I'd never been in the ring, I'd never been to a boxing match. Turned out Weathers was as natural an athlete as he was an actor. His abilities can clearly be seen in movies like Action Jackson, where Weathers starred as the titular Detroit police detective investigating a corrupt auto magnate. In one memorable sequence, the actor chases a taxi cab before overtaking it and flinging himself on the top of the vehicle. He did many of his own stunts. Hey, you! Born in New Orleans in 1948, the son of a day labourer, Weathers grew up playing sports. He earned an athletic scholarship to a private high school and San Diego State University. He went on to play pro football for the Oakland Raiders for a couple of seasons until 1974. But Weathers told Gross that acting was his first love. You know, I get to do what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid, which was be a professional actor. He landed roles in a couple of black exploitation movies, as well as bit parts on TV shows like Good Times and Starsky and Hutch. Like a lot of Hollywood actors, it wasn't clear if he would break through. And then came the Rocky audition. But he told Terry Gross he felt like it wasn't going well. And I turned to them and just blurted out, you know, if you get me a real actor, I could do a much better job. He didn't realise the actor he was reading with was Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> well, I didn't know that the writer and the, and the star of the movie were one and the same. Weathers went on to appear in Predator and The Mandalorian, along with more than 75 other films and TV shows. Adept as a dramatic actor, Weathers could also be funny. In the sports comedy Happy Gilmore, the actor plays a golf legend opposite Adam Sandler. You have no idea who I am, do you? No, I don't. Back in 1965, Sports Illustrated said I was going to be the next Arnold Palmer. Yeah, what happened? They wouldn't let me play on the pro tour anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. Because you're black? Hell no. 
goddamned alligator bit my hand off. Oh, my God! Yeah. According to a statement from his family, Weathers died peacefully in his sleep. A representative told NPR Weathers was, quote, a true gentleman and a lovely human being. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. The open ocean can be a lonely and dangerous place. If you need a rescue, you may have to rely on whatever ship happens to be passing by. Well, Jeff Guo from NPR's Planet Money podcast explains the ancient law that governs how sea rescuers get rewarded and tells a pretty good sea story, too. On a dark and stormy night almost 30 years ago, Captain Skip Strong was sailing up the Florida coast when he hears a distress call coming over the radio. There is a tugboat nearby, and it is in trouble. And the Coast Guard is saying, yeah, we'd like you to offer any assistance you can to help these guys out. And I'm like, what do these guys expect us to do? We're a loaded oil tanker out here. Yeah, Skip is in charge of a 700-foot oil tanker. It's hard to imagine a ship less suited for a rescue operation. But they are in the middle of a tropical storm. There aren't any other ships around to help. And when the tugboat captain comes on the radio, sounds like he's in real danger. Once he has to shut that engine down because of the fireballs in the engine room, he's getting dragged two and a half to three knots towards the coast of Florida. And it's like, this guy's having a bad night. So Skip and his crew decide they are going to try to rescue this tugboat. Skip orders his oil tanker full speed ahead. By the time they reach the tug, it's around 4 a.m., it's pitch black, the wind is blowing more than 50 miles an hour, this giant tanker is tilting back and forth in 20-foot waves. I've got, you know, six, seven, eight feet of water rolling across the deck. Um, That will hurt people, if not kill them. Skip has to send his crew out onto that pitching and rolling deck where waves keep crashing over them to try and essentially lasso this tugboat. On their first try, the rope misses the boat entirely. No idea where that line went. The second time, they manage to attach the rope to the tug. But then, the rope snaps. Almost. We were so close to having this done. But on their third and final attempt, they get this tugboat secured. And by the way, it's not just this tugboat. This whole time, the tugboat has been towing a barge. And as the sun comes up, Skip finally catches a glimpse of this thing. I'd never seen a barge that looked like this. It looks like an old military barracks type of thing or an old aircraft hangar. Skip radios the captain of the tugboat. And said, what do you have in that thing back there? And he said, it's a liquid fuel cell for the space shuttle. And I said, you mean the big, you know, the big orange tank, you know, that the shuttle hangs on? He said, yeah, that one. And he's like, well, that's an unusual cargo. That barge was headed for Cape Canaveral. Skip and his crew have rescued a key component of the space shuttle, that iconic orange fuel tank. A few hours later, Skip's on a conference call with his bosses, and they point out that according to a maritime law that goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, Skip and his crew are entitled to a reward. They tell him, Congratulations, Captain Strong. You now have salvage rights to everything behind you. Salvage rights. Skip had forgotten about the ancient law of salvage, which says that if you rescue a ship from danger at sea, you get a reward based on the value of the stuff you saved. In this case, Skip and his crew had rescued a multi-million dollar piece of the space shuttle. My reaction at that point in time was, holy yeah, oh, salvage. The idea behind salvage awards is that ancient societies wanted to encourage sailors to help out other sailors in trouble. To this day, most of the world still follows this principle. 
Now, in this case, it took a few years to get the salvage reward sorted out. A federal judge had to assess the value of the space shuttle tank, weigh that against the heroism and the riskiness of the rescue. But at the end of it all, Skip and his crew and their employer shared an award of nearly $5 million. According to the court, this was the largest salvage award in U.S. history. Though, Skip says, on that dark and stormy night, he was just trying to help out those guys on that tugboat. I didn't do this for money to begin with. The fact that I'm getting something is truly a bonus on top. A bonus that, for Skip, was worth $300,000. Not bad. Jeff Guo, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight, Harvard Tasty Pudding Theatricals will honor its Man of the Year. The group will roast Irish actor Barry Keoghan. He's known for his recent film Saltburn and the Banshees of Irna Sheeran. A roast will be held Tuesday for the group's Woman of the Year, actress Annette Benning. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. With over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries, free admission every day. Open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The White House says U.S. aircraft are out of harm's way after successful airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. The attacks targeted Iran-backed militias who facilitated the drone strike that killed three American soldiers in Jordan over the weekend. Washington says it informed the Iraqi government prior to the strikes. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The White House also says that troops did not attack inside Iran. The ketogenic diet, also known as keto, was originally developed for epilepsy, but in recent years, it's most popular for weight loss. Now promising new research shows it could be used for mental health. 
almost everybody who tries a ketogenic diet in the right way for long enough experiences some degree of noticeable benefit. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Officials are confirming the U.S. military has carried out airstrikes on sites in Iraq and Syria. The strikes reportedly involving 85 targets linked to Iranian-backed militia groups and Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. They're in retaliation for a drone strike in Jordan last Sunday that claimed the lives of three U.S. service members. NPR's Tom Bowman has more on the U.S. operation. We're told there are both uh, Air Force uh, attack aircraft taking part in this as well as uh, naval uh, airstrike capability. And we expect this to go on for some time. And Pentagon officials have said that this will be a tiered approach. So we don't expect this to be a one-off series of airstrikes against facilities in both Iraq and Syria. NPR's Tom Bowman, President Joe Biden had vowed to retaliate for the attack against U.S. forces in a statement tonight. said while the U.S. does not seek conflict in the Mideast, quote, if you harm an American, we will respond. Former President Donald Trump's federal election interference trial that was slated to start next month in Washington has now officially been postponed. The move had long been expected as Trump pursues a legal challenge to his prosecution at the appeals court level. Here's NPR's Ryan Lucas. Trump had been scheduled to go to trial on March 4th for allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election results in a prosecution brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Now U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin has formally scrapped that date, postponing the trial until an unspecified future time. The case has been on hold for weeks as a three-judge appeals court panel weighs Trump's argument that he is immune from prosecution for actions taken while he was president. The appeals court heard oral arguments nearly a month ago but has yet to issue a ruling. Any decision it does make is likely to be appealed to the Supreme Court. In her order, Judge Chutkin says she will set a new trial date if and when the case is returned to her. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. California officials are bracing for the arrival of a set second atmospheric river this week. NPR's Nathan Rott reports the storm system is expected to bring life-threatening flooding to parts of the state. This second atmospheric river is expected to be stronger than the first, which caused localized flooding up and down the West Coast earlier this week. And unlike the first, it's expected to be mostly concentrated on California, particularly central and southern California. The National Weather Service in Los Angeles is warning that the atmospheric river could drop unprecedented rain over a wide area from Saturday night through early next week. Flash flooding, urban flooding, and debris flows are all expected. Officials are telling people, especially those who live next to rivers, streams, or along mountainous areas, to prepare. Nathan Rob, NPR News, Ventura, California. Strong January jobs numbers helped to push stocks higher today. The Dow rose 134 points. The Nasdaq was up 267 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Newton School Committee and the teachers union say they're close to a deal to end the strike that's gone on for two weeks. Both sides say they've agreed on financial issues, but they say they have a few matters to work out regarding management and planning time for educators. Meantime, WBUR's Carrie Young says a judge is considering whether to raise fines on the teachers union for the strike. The judge ruled today that the fines on the Newton Teachers Association would increase from $50,000, which is where they've been all this week, 
to $100,000 per day of the strike. That would begin at 8 p.m. on Sunday if no deal is reached by then. By 8 o'clock tonight, the union will have been fined $625,000. Teacher strikes are illegal in Massachusetts. Stewart Healthcare says it has a deal in place to stabilize its finances and keep its nine Massachusetts hospitals open for now. The Texas-based for-profit company has warned that financial problems jeopardized its operations. Stewart says it has an agreement on a bridge funding transaction but did not give specifics. Tim Foley is the executive vice president of 1199 SEIU. The union represents about 5,000 steward workers. I think it's a good sign that there's stability for some duration as a longer-term plan is put in place to ensure these hospitals remain open. Stewart has 16,000 workers in Massachusetts. And a judge on the state Supreme Judicial Court ruled today that hearings for 28 people accused of being customers of a high-end brothel will be held in public. Associate Justice Frank Gaziano ruled that having public hearings will promote transparency and accountability. Typically, these hearings are held behind closed doors. Today, the judge also ruled that supporting court documents that detail the charges will not be released. That's despite a request from WBUR, the Boston Globe, and NBC10. Boston. None of those accused of being customers of the sex ring have been criminally charged yet. Federal prosecutors say the brothel was run out of Cambridge, Watertown, and the Washington, D.C. area. In the forecast, lots of clouds overnight tonight, turning windy. Chance of showers, but uh, not likely too much, should be before midnight, if anything. About 30 degrees for a low. Weekend is looking pretty nice. Cold, though. Temperatures in the mid-30s, both Saturday and Sunday. Clouds to start off the day tomorrow before the sun moves in. Kind of windy tomorrow. Sunday should be sunny pretty much all day long. 40 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagements, and the advancements of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is All all Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Our top story this hour, the U.S. has carried out a series of retaliatory airstrikes against Iranian military forces and affiliated militias in both Syria and Iraq tonight. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the military struck dozens of targets at seven facilities. These U.S. attacks come six days after a drone strike on an American base in Jordan that killed three U.S. troops and at least 40 more service members. President Biden has said the response will continue. Well, NPR's Jane Araf is in the Iraqi capital tonight. Uh, she is in Baghdad. And Jane, tell us, what do you know? Hi, Mary Louise. Well, the strikes took place in Iraq's western Al-Anbar province, which is about um, the main city there, Al-Qaim, is about 250 miles from Baghdad, so in quite a remote area as well as across the border in Syria. The U.S. military said they were targeting Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and militias affiliated with it. And they say they hit more than 85 targets, including command and control operations, intelligence bases, 
and heavy weapons depots. Tribal security officials on the Iraqi side of the border said the strikes included missile warehouses in the border city of Al-Qaim and airstrikes on Akashat in the middle of the Enbar Desert where Iraq's Iran-backed militias maintain one of their main bases. Across the border in Syria, the Imam Ali base constructed by Iran and its proxies near the city of Abu Kamal was also hit. And when you say um, a base constructed by Iran and Iranian proxies, what groups specifically are being targeted here? Well, the main player here, apart from uh, direct Iranian forces, is Qatab Hezbollah. It's a militia that's perhaps the most powerful of those that are part of the anti-U.S. resistance, as it calls itself, a group, a coalition, basically, that had been around for some years but has been revitalized since the war in Gaza. Qatab Hezbollah is at the center of a lot of this. The U.S. said the airstrike on its base in Jordan, which killed three service people, bore the fingerprints of the group. But it's also very much aimed directly, in a sense, at Iran, although obviously not in Iranian territory, because they've been hitting bases where the IRCG Quds Force, the elite unit of Iran's basically expeditionary paramilitary, which works with militias in Iraq, operates. And they've been hitting a a strategic area along that border, strategic both to the Iranian militias, the pro-Iranian militias, sorry, Iran-backed militias, let's Mm -hmm, say, mm -hmm. that use it, and strategic for the U.S. It's where the U.S. fought some of its fiercest battles against al-Qaeda and ISIS, and it's where Iran-backed militias moved in to fight ISIS in 2014 and never left. Yeah. So you're describing this border area. It's strategic. It is far from Baghdad, where, where you are. Just speak to how destabilizing these strikes could be in a region that is already so on edge. Extremely destabilizing. It's a very delicate balance, as you know. Iraq almost instantly condemned these strikes as an attack on its sovereignty. And interestingly, the U.S. noted that the airstrikes were carried out in part by long-range bombers flown from the United States. That would be a move that would be aimed at avoiding some of the expected repercussions had the U.S. used bases in Iraq to carry out those strikes. Now, Iran says it's not responsible for the militias launching attacks, but the militias, though, do have clear ties to Iran, and both Iran and the coalition of groups attacking the U.S. have made clear that these Uh attacks will continue until the war in Gaza stops. All right. NPR's Jane Araf up late for us tonight in Baghdad. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. So you may have heard of the high-fat, low-carb keto diet. It's become popular for weight loss. But the ketogenic diet was first developed for people with epilepsy. And now some doctors say it shows promise for mental health. NPR's Will Stone has that story. Ian Campbell was gazing out the window as he took the bus to work when he first sensed a radical shift. He saw the trees and the natural world passing him by. And I was like, oh, people feel good when they look at nature, kind of happy and peaceful. And I hadn't experienced that in a really long time, probably since I was a kid. For many years, Campbell had lived with bipolar disorder. Oh my gosh, this might be what it feels like to be normal. A few weeks earlier, he'd started a new diet, hoping to lose some weight. He cut out carbs and focused on eating fat and protein. 
Turns out, without realizing it, Campbell had entered ketosis. It's a metabolic state when the body switches gears. Instead of relying on glucose, blood sugar, as its primary energy source, it draws on ketones, which come from the breakdown of fat. And then I did a graph and I saw that my ketone level was correlated to my symptoms. The higher ketone level, the lower my symptoms. Campbell went on to get a PhD at the University of Edinburgh so he could study why this diet might work for mental illness. And he wasn't the only one interested. A few years earlier, Dr. Chris Palmer, a psychiatrist at Harvard and McLean Hospital, had his own revelation after two of his patients with schizoaffective disorder tried keto. Both of them had really, truly dramatic, life-changing improvement in their psychotic symptoms. The ketogenic diet was developed over 100 years ago. It's considered a mainstream, evidence-based treatment for pediatric epilepsy, which is why Palmer says it's not out of place in his field. Treatments from epilepsy are routinely prescribed for psychiatric conditions. We use them off-label, even when we don't have studies to suggest or to prove that they are helpful for people with mental illness. So in many ways, this is nothing new. But there wasn't much momentum around this research until a few years ago. That's when Palmer started working with Matt Bazuki. His parents were Jan and David Bazuki, a wealthy tech entrepreneur. Jan thought the diet might help her son, who tried many treatments for bipolar disorder. Within a couple of months, we saw a dramatic change. Soon, the family was eager to fund serious research. Now there are about a dozen clinical trials in the works to test the ketogenic diet's potential for mental illness, in particular for bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and major depression. The research and the clinical interest is suddenly exploding. Dr. Georgia Ede is a psychiatrist in Massachusetts who trains other clinicians on how to use the diet. From working with hundreds of people over more than 10 years, almost everybody, and this is really not an exaggeration, who tries a ketogenic diet in the right way for long enough experiences some degree of noticeable benefit. At the moment, there is no high-quality evidence, no randomized controlled trials to back this up. What's out there is encouraging, though. For example, several small open trials have shown promise for bipolar disorder. And an observational study of patients hospitalized with serious mental illness in France found more than 40 percent achieved clinical remission. Here's how Dr. Shabani Sethi sums up the evidence. I would say it's in a very early stage. Sethi is leading this research at Stanford University. The classic ketogenic diet contains an eye-popping amount of fat, about 90% of calories coming from that alone. But there are now other versions that dial down the fat and make more room for protein and slightly more carbs. It's not a fad diet. It's a medical intervention. The interest in keto reflects a broader movement around what's known as metabolic psychiatry. It's a term Sethi coined when she launched Stanford's program in 2015. To communicate how metabolic dysfunction, whether it's in the body or in the brain, play a significant role in psychiatric disease. The research here goes back decades. While a causal link isn't proven, there are strong, well-documented associations between certain psychiatric conditions and metabolic problems, like high blood sugar, insulin resistance, and obesity. Sethi's research on bipolar disorder finds the diet can reduce patient symptoms and improve their metabolic health. She says the diet isn't a substitute for medications. It's not going to necessarily be helpful for everybody, but it's a tool that will help some individuals. Scientists still aren't entirely sure why keto works for seizures. Much of the evidence on the diet comes from epilepsy and other neurological conditions that share similarities with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and depression. This includes increased inflammation in the brain, harmful oxidative stress, and problems metabolizing glucose. 
Research suggests keto can be beneficial on all these fronts, though human studies are limited. Some believe the mitochondria, the power plants of the cell, are crucial. This is what Ana Andreaza studies at the University of Toronto. The mitochondria in our bodies, it's mostly very functional and very adaptable to different sources of energy. But she says research shows in psychiatric illness, the mitochondria can run into trouble. It's actually dysfunctional and is not being responsive. Imagine the mitochondria as a car with a hybrid engine. These ketones, which come from fat, provide an alternative fuel. So when we bring this alternative source of effective energy, now you're bypassing that unaffected fuel that was coming to the car. The thinking goes that fixing that metabolic engine can also help psychiatric symptoms. Dr. Dost Unger at McLean Hospital believes keto research will propel other treatments targeting metabolic health in psychiatry. The ketogenic diet is really a test case, but it's not the silver bullet. We have to be modest about this. But some doctors, like Drew Ramsey, worry there's already too much hype ahead of solid evidence. Everyone should be skeptical. Ramsey is a psychiatrist who focuses on nutrition. He has many questions. When does it work? It works for some people, which is awesome, but most things work for some people in mental health. Another question is, can patients stick to the diet? Dr. Rif L. Malik is a psychiatrist at the University of Louisville. He believes keto can be effective for bipolar disorder and had luck with a few patients over the years, but... I haven't been able to get people to stay on it. So I'm not at all as excited as maybe other people. Other doctors say with enough support and education, patients can do it. In his pilot trial, Ian Campbell found about a quarter of people dropped out. But of the patients who completed the study, about a third responded powerfully. They would describe it to me like, this changed my life completely. I'm reconnecting with my family. I can work again for the first time. It's a sentiment that Campbell knows well, and it's why he's pushing forward with this work. Will Stone, NPR News. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. Start your weekend with 90.9 WBUR tomorrow morning. We'll preview President Biden's official debut in the campaign on the South Carolina primary ballot. So listen again tomorrow morning as you wake up. And coming up this evening in business news, houses make up a major portion of carbon emissions released into the atmosphere. So some developers are creating net zero homes. How do they do it? That's coming up in business news starting at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business helping businesses go further with internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent today. The S&P rose for a fourth straight week, picking up more than one percent to finish at a record high. And the Nasdaq grew by one and three-quarters percent. The cost of filling your average 275-gallon oil tank this week should come in at just over $1,100. The State Department of Energy Resources says the average price for heating oil is $4.04 a gallon. That's up a nickel a gallon from last week. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Executive Ph.D. program in business at Bentley. Three years part-time for professionals seeking data research skills. Online info sessions, February 9th and 21st. 
One more cloudy night, then one more cloudy morning, and then we should see the sunshine gradually breaking through during the day tomorrow. A windy, dry, chilly day on Saturday, right about the mid-30s. Sunday should bring bright sunshine, although we shouldn't break out of the mid-30s. Could see the sunshine lasting into early next week. This is WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sarah McCammon. In El Salvador, President Nayib Bukele is expected to win re-election by a landslide on Sunday. The popular leader, who calls himself the world's coolest dictator, declared a state of emergency nearly two years ago. During this period, the murder rate has dropped and tens of thousands of gang members have been imprisoned. That brought a new sense of security to the country, but as Emily Green reports, it came at a major cost. Nayib Bukele catapulted to the presidency in 2019. He was 37 years old, favored leather jackets and jeans, and was a social media maverick. Since then, Bukele has become one of the most popular and polemical leaders in all of Latin America. Here he is in a recent video. We were sold a fake peace, he says, and 30 years passed and they sold us a fake security. It's typical Bukele, antagonizing, brash, and politically astute. Because Bukele, against all odds, has succeeded in decimating the country's violent street gangs and bringing homicide rates to all-time lows, which he advertises on social media and captures in videos like these. Gang members with shaved heads, stripped down to white shorts, being rounded up in newly built mega prisons. Bukele has achieved all this by essentially disregarding the Constitution. He's imposed an indefinite state of emergency that has suspended constitutional rights and given authorities sweeping powers to arrest anyone, regardless of whether there's evidence. More than 76,000 people have been detained. And most Salvadorans, they're thrilled. God listened to our prayers, says Arnulfo Mazarego. He sells pupusas and sodas at a street stand in Las Margaritas. For decades, it was one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the capital. Where were human rights when children were killed right before my eyes just because they didn't want to do a favor for the gangs, he says. Masarego says for years, he had to pay a monthly extortion fee of around $250 to the MS-13 street gang just to run his business in peace. But after Bukele's crackdown, the gang members were arrested. Masariego used extortion money to pay for an operation on his eyes. He was going blind. I don't care if Bukele is violating the Constitution, he says. A constitution that clearly prohibits presidents from serving consecutive terms. But Masariego says it's the people that will decide. From Chile to Ecuador, many leaders are scrambling to emulate Bukele's security policies. He was even voted Costa Rica's favorite political leader in an October poll there. The Biden administration, which was critical of Bukele, has softened its tone. 
But rights groups say thousands of innocent people have been caught up in Bukele's gang crackdown. Around 100 people marched in the capital calling for the release of their loved ones. Jose Antonio Beltran carries a photo of his daughter to his chest. He says police showed up at his home in December 2022 and demanded his daughter go with them. He says the police didn't give a reason, just that they were under orders to make their quota. I'm worried because my daughter isn't a criminal, he tells us. She doesn't have a criminal record. It's been almost 14 months and I still don't have information and she hasn't even been tried, he says. While Bukele has acknowledged that some innocent people have been unjustly arrested, he has lambasted human rights groups who criticize his policies, saying they're siding with terrorists. And that message is winning in El Salvador. Some analysts project that Bukele's political party will win 58 of 60 congressional seats, giving Bukele unchecked authority. Malcolm Cartagena is a political analyst in El Salvador. La gente va directo al matadero. People are consciously headed straight to the slaughterhouse, he says. There will be more imprisonments, more persecution, he says. But democracy is a hard sell in a country where violence and jobs are top of mind. Around 70 people gather at a small political rally in San Salvador's historic downtown. A man on a loudspeaker praises Bukele, reminding people to vote. This area was once filled with gangs, but now brims with street life. Carlos Flores is here with his four children. They're all wearing t-shirts adorned with Bukele's picture. Flores fled to Virginia as a young man. It's his first time home in 25 years. He says he couldn't travel here before because of the violence. It was too dangerous. But everything is different now, he says. When he left for El Salvador, he couldn't walk around like he is now, he says, with a watch on and everything. Now I can breathe fresh air. In El Salvador, President Bukele has made people choose. Do they want freedom from gang violence? Or do they want civil liberties and human rights? Most people are choosing the former. For NPR News, I'm Emily Green in Mexico City. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is WBUR. Tonight, dozens of migrant families will spend yet another night on the floor at Logan Airport. They need temporary housing, but the state shelters are full. So this week, the governor's office opened a new shelter at a busy recreation center in Roxbury. The decision to move the migrants there has gotten pushback from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and from Roxbury residents who are already facing economic and housing burdens. But as WBR's Paula Mora reports, their objections have not stopped the plan. Around mid-January, Governor Mora Healy faced an emergency. A couple hundred migrants were spending nights at the airport, and the state's shelters were full. After looking at many potential shelter sites, the state was focused on one, the Melnia Cass Recreational Complex, a place where youth groups play sports and older residents walk on the track. The Healy administration reached out to political leaders in Roxbury for a community meeting. About 250 people attended on Zoom. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu was clearly unhappy. Taking offline a community asset that was specifically designed for community programming to be used in this way. And that I I take very seriously. For me, that has been um, a big sticking point. 
the meeting lasted more than three hours, the governor stayed the whole time. In an email, her spokesperson said the state incorporated the community's feedback into their plans. City Councilor Tanya Fernandez Anderson is one of the local representatives who helped organize the session with residents. She spoke with WBUR in an interview. The governor is not oblivious that she's coming to a neighborhood that's historically disenfranchised in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Boston. People are going to push back. The mayor seemed to hold out hope that night that another option could be found. But by Monday, the deal was done. The governor told the Roxbury representatives in a letter that plans were underway to shelter up to 400 people at the center. Residents would not be able to use the site until June. Fernandez said the governor was emotional at the meeting. Obviously, her hands were tied. Officials said other locations like Suffolk Downs and a West Roxbury campus wouldn't work as well. The Roxbury Center was more accessible, had more bathrooms and other benefits. To some, the decision was unfair. Sadiki Kambon is the director of the Black Community Information Center. He says he's sympathetic to the migrants, but says that officials didn't consult the community enough. It's just a broad level of disrespect for our community that we encounter on a regular basis. He wants to meet with the governor about this and to advocate for walk-in health clinics in Nubian Square. On Wednesday, Healy and Wu put on a united front at a press conference, and long rows of cots were set up to receive the newcomers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moura. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And the ICA, Art from the Caribbean and Beyond, in a groundbreaking new exhibition. On view now, ICABoston.org.